Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. Well, the elephant in the room this week is, of course, <laughs> uh, President Trump and his uh, executive order designed to limit Section 230 protection after Twitter marked one of his tweets with uh, additional information and essentially fact-checked one of his tweets. Um, this has uh, definitely been the big topic bouncing around tech this week. You saw that uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook kind of came out quickly and um, suggested that these platforms shouldn't be the arbiters of truth. There's been a number of articles from groups like the EFF that talk about what's wrong with the executive order and, and how it's uh, misreading 230 protections. Uh, and so we'll see where this plays out. It's probably something that will play out, has been playing out for, for many years in Washington, D.C., will probably play out for a number of years. Uh, I, I thought the EFF did a great job of highlighting two sections of 230, subsection C1 and subsection C2, and how they've always been viewed independent of one another, and, and Trump's executive order seems to combine the two. Ross, your thoughts on uh, Trump's executive order? Well, Sean, as you know, I am one of the premier First Amendment lawyers uh, in, in the country in my spare time. Um, so this, you know, as you know, this uh, potential, this executive order or uh, some blowback uh, against 230 has been circulating for some time. Um, uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, has also uh, been, been critical of it. Uh, and the EFF response um, essentially talks about how, uh, does acknowledge how uh, things have changed a lot uh, since the order was first created. Um, responding to the idea of kind of an open internet uh, and um, and how you know these days uh, most of the uh, online communication uh, or at least publishing if you will uh, in terms of people expressing their their opinions publicly uh, is controlled by uh, a few uh, large companies Twitter of course was the uh, the one that incurred uh, the, the wrath of uh, Trump by uh, labeling his tweets, uh, but the order would also cover Facebook uh, and, and Google, um, in particular uh, YouTube, uh, because that's really more of the media uh, arm than, uh, than Google. And so, um, you know, as, as you know, Sean, there, there are a lot of questions around uh, the, the not, not only the legal understanding of it, but kind of the logistics around it. You know, it directs the Commerce Department to pressure the FCC. Uh, and then, of course, even well beyond that, there's a larger constitutional question. So uh, I'm sure you're right that, uh, uh, you know, to the extent this makes any progress, it will, it will surely be, be challenged by the courts. And there's uh, was also a piece in the Times, uh, or I think it was the Times, uh, speculating that uh, uh, you know, if, if this were to uh, take effect, it, it could be ironically uh, damaging uh, to Trump, who has uh, used Twitter uh, extensively to communicate with the world and, and his base. Uh, and uh, 
if, if Twitter, for example, felt that it had to fear reprisals about libel, uh, which is, or lawsuits uh, from damaging information uh, on its service, then it, it might uh, be far less inclined to carry Trump's tweets at all. Uh, I mean, in addition to the tweets of many other people, controversial people. Uh, but, uh, but certainly it, it, it's hard to think of someone who has um, leveraged the platform to greater effect than he has. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's a great point, Ross. I mean, I think if you were to limit 230 protection, it would be very difficult today for any of these platforms to to fully regulate. And we've seen the great struggles that Facebook and others have had in in regulating hate speech and in regulating mm -hmm. others that even as videos have gone viral of certain events, of mass shootings and others, it's been difficult to uh, to pull them down despite the use of artificial intelligence and you know machine learning capabilities the videos right. are are manipulated in a way that allows them to to linger on the site longer than the platforms would would prefer so uh you know that's been very difficult to to manage and would be very very difficult to manage maybe not so much for the the stars of the platform like the president but uh for the the everyday joes that are right. just posting Little things would be very difficult to manage, I think. Also, um, it's, uh, it's, I think, useful to keep in mind why Twitter chose uh, this uh, particular tweet and why it took even stronger action against uh, Trump's tweet about the uh, Minneapolis uh, looters and riots uh, protesting uh, the, uh, the, the George Floyd uh, killing, uh, which was that... Uh, the first one was uh, tagged uh, because of a new Twitter policy or an updated Twitter policy uh, that it wants to flag information that could potentially be linked to manipulating an election. Um, and this post was about the viability of mail-in ballots. So, so, you know, this is a, a rabbit hole and you could say uh, what, you know, what is relevant to manipulating an election, you know, probably make a long list. But but you know that was their justification, and in the case of the uh, the, the you know when the looting begins, the shooting begins. Uh, quote uh, that was about uh, you know uh, I, I forgot the exact phrasing, but but you know could result in a, a call to action for violence, you know, or promoting violence. I think that's what it was. Uh, so um, you know, uh, is it is it a, sort of a uh, a, a an airtight uh, defense against the idea that this was politically motivated, of course not. You know, but but they are, you know, at least making an argument about why it was this these particular tweets, and and they did react to the different tweets uh, differently. Uh, and um, you know, another reason why it's so, um, you know, uh, so so. Um, uh, so opaque, uh, as, as, you know, that they released the executive order right now as, you know, a, a clear reaction to this particular tweet is because there really hasn't been a chance to see how these policies are applied across the political spectrum. You know, what if it turns out a few months from now that Twitter is labeling more posts from people on the left, you know, than people on the right? Who knows? Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it, it just seems like a, you know, kind of a knee-jerk reaction, um, bubbling up something that had 
been simmering uh, for uh, for about a year or so. Yeah, and and like you said, this is a Pandora's box that uh, we could open widely, and right. that uh, it, it's hard not to politicize it because it has been. It does feel politically motivated, and so uh, we're we're dancing delicately around this topic, not to be <laughs> too engulfed in the, the the politics of it all. But um, they're clearly not the last word on two thirty, and and. For somebody who's in D.C., we see mm-hmm. 230 protection is is constantly being debated. And there's been a n- number of uh, even recent cases that have have looked at it and looked um, and had to rule on it. And so we will be seeing more of this. And, and this is something that will likely be tested very soon because uh, 230 was a, a law passed by Congress. And right. um, this executive order in some ways seeks to not just interpret, but overrule elements of that and change. Right, which is change. another controversial element. Of yes. It, you know. Yeah. So, so those things will be tested sooner than others. Uh, it would take years for some of these things to move through the courts. And so this will not be the last word that we, that we hear on this. And to your point, as we move closer to November, uh, you'll, you'll likely see this become a more central topic and it's a topic that's central to uh, a kind of a much bigger topic that will be part of the um uh, of the elections that kind of fell to the back seat when we moved into the, to covid-19 and coronavirus outbreaks and this is just the influence of tech what can tech do especially you know quote unquote big tech how right. influential can they be in these different markets where should they be allowed to to operate freely and where should they be more uh, more regulated. So this is just part of a m- much bigger story. And it probably is why you saw Mark Zuckerberg come out so strongly against Twitter, uh, because um, Mark Zuckerberg probably feels the, the the pressure around potential regulation mo- most acutely of all the platforms, and uh, probably wants to avoid that at, at all costs. Yeah, we, uh, we didn't really get into it on the podcast. And I, I don't want to necessarily get into it. I don't want to get into it now. But uh, there was an interesting story um, about Facebook a few weeks ago and this new sort of board of advisors they've created mm-hmm. around content. Kind of a fascinating uh, story um, about you know who they chose and what their powers are and the lengths they've tried to go to to make them independent and how Zuckerberg can't overrule them, which is really weird, you know, uh, given the amount of control that he's uh, typically portrayed having in the company. So. Um, so they are, you know, they're certainly aware of these kinds of issues, um, but uh, but uh, maybe they feel after going through all of this stuff that, uh, you know, that that they have a, a good plan in place now. So probably a good place Bring to on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good place to pivot to our next story we want to talk talk about coming out of Microsoft Build. One of the themes that we saw and we hit on this in last week's episode was their uh, fluid frame. Uh, Ross, why don't you dive in on that one and, and lead us? Sure. There. So this was something that was uh, a little under the radar for me, um, which is uh, you know why I didn't uh, we didn't talk about it in uh, our build discussion last week. But uh, the more I've been reading up on it, uh, the more fascinating it is. Uh, essentially, what Fluid Framework is it's um, it, it's a method of um, taking really any kind of content. Uh, and putting it into any kind of document, 
um, and uh, allowing for sort of real-time web collaboration. And there are certainly elements of this that have been around for decades. If you've ever, you know, put an Excel chart in, in PowerPoint, uh, you know, this was a, a Microsoft uh, innovation called Olay uh, that's been around since, uh, I, I think, at least the, the, uh, the 90s. Uh, but um, the, uh, this, this really updates it and takes it to another level uh, in allowing, uh, it reminds me a little bit about of, a, of an answer to Olay that, that Apple and a few companies tried creating called OpenDoc. And the idea there was that, you know, the document, not the application, would be the focus of the, um, uh, would, would be the focus of the work. But even beyond that, you know, this is really updated for the collaborative web era. <clears throat> and uh, the idea is that, you know, in addition to being able to put a PowerPoint chart uh, or, you know, a, a Microsoft list or an Asana workflow or a Gantt chart or, you know, from really any uh, capable editor, uh, when you would put it into one of these container websites uh, or applications, uh, it would remain uh, editable and, and updated live, and the real difference, uh, collaborative. So uh, one of the reasons why Google Docs was able to make uh, progress against uh, Office uh, was because of the real-time collaboration and commenting. Uh, and uh, this not only supports this, uh, but Microsoft says it was really built from the start to um, uh, built from the start to uh, uh, to to be very fast and responsive and support you know maybe maybe 15 people simultaneously updating a document in real time. Um, so if you think about a container application like Slack or Teams that has really broad distribution, uh, innovative software developers could create components that could gain really widespread distribution by plugging new functionality uh, into popular apps such as those. It, it definitely feels like the, uh, the, the direction we're going with, um, you know, collaboration needing to take place in uh, remote locations and, and mm -hmm. finding, kind of finding new ways to collaborate. So lighter weight components. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's now transition to our next story. It, it, it is um, HTC co-founder Peter Chu launches XR Space to, uh, as VentureBeat called it, bring social VR to the masses. I feel like that's a headline I have seen countless <laughs> times over the last five years, uh, that this will finally be the the move towards VR in social space. and And I feel like, VR really missed an opportunity in the current pandemic. Like this, absolutely. If you yeah, were we talked a bit about it last week, yeah. right? If you yeah. were going, if you were going to do VR and try to create uh, a virtual experience where people felt like they were in the same room, uh, this was the time to do it. Especially because you're seeing, and I think, an increased amount of of zoom fatigue or video fatigue where people are just feeling exhausted staring at a, at a screens and trying to be engaged in that environment and maybe vr could uh, offer an alternative that would be more more effective so um we'll see if if peter chu can do this with xr space it, you know i think that it's um it's interesting that we haven't seen 
it much pickup and and probably part of that right is that the services are still very nascent there isn't a lot of hardware out there but we've also seen over the last couple of weeks that people are buying lots of tech to build out their home offices they're buying laptops they're buying ring lights they're buying upgraded webcams you know they're they're doing a lot of things to enhance their work from home environment and so vr would have could have easily been a, a purchase there yeah i think that uh it says a lot that for all the zoom fatigue uh vr it, vr creates even more fatigue and he's talking about this as something that people would conceivably wear all day which is a big ask uh for for vr and in terms of the democratization I mean, we've, we've seen far lower priced offerings from bigger players in the market. We saw Google try Cardboard and Daydream for many years. We, try, we saw, uh, we, we've seen Oculus come out with a, a couple of very good products, uh, the Go at $200 and the Quest at $400, which is sold out everywhere right now. So, so there has been some momentum, I suppose, but this thing is at $600. You know, you, you might say it's it's a bit more fashionable than some of the other VR uh, setups out there. It has integrated hand tracking, so you don't need a controller, which is, you know, kind of a nice uh, win in, in the ease of use play. But I have to think if any company is going to make a serious run at VR as a social environment, it would be Facebook. You know, they, they have great technology, and of course, they have the world's largest social network. So it's hard for me to see, regardless of how good this community software may be, uh, how this pushes VR further into the mainstream. I, I think, you know, Peter Chu at HTC was also behind the, the start of Vive, uh, which mm -hmm. is one of the higher-end uh, VR headset. And I, I think he has some realistic expectations about, how long a journey this is apparently he feels like he can uh, withstand it with this new venture well it's the the headset is touted as the world's first 5g consumer uh, mobile vr headset so it does have the the 5g moniker and the 5g tie-in and and i think you you need to think about um what that enables some of this content to do because then it it probably means not just very quick, low latency, high data throughput, but also potentially mobile. And and uh, mm -hmm. this is is positioned as a mobile device, so you know maybe it it rethinks experiences. Um, you know, I, I, kind of on a related note, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is how, and I might have mentioned this on a previous episode, but how the the capital that we have deployed really is built around the, and the productivity of that capital is it requires some amount of of congestion so you think about mm. subway systems and bus systems you think about major sports stadiums like all of those airlines all of those do really well when they're full and anything less than full of people the productivity of that capital and that's a lot of you know think about a stadium how much money goes into a stadium a lot of money just sitting there underutilized if it's not full. And so mm -hmm, I think the, mm -hmm. the pandemic has everybody rethinking, well, how do we redeploy this capital? VR headsets are interesting because it really is a one-for-one -one application. And so mm -hmm. as long as you have one person on the, the 
using the device, then you are essentially fully leveraging that that capital. Um, I mean, there's probably some network effects we could think through where you need you want multiple people on that, especially when you're thinking about a a consumer social experience. You know, the value of that social network is, of course, a function of how many people are on the network. Right. Uh, but you could see that that potentially having an impact if there are going to be environments where we're not going to be do, doing certain things around other people for some period of time. Maybe there is a an entertainment element where people could use these in, in some type of social setting, or maybe there is a, a shopping experience. You know, it, we're, we're kind of moving into this reservation society at, at least temporarily, and maybe that mm-hmm, sticks mm-hmm. where you show up at the mall and they don't let you in the store because it isn't time for your appointment. Maybe there you could you could virtually enter the store and uh, and do some things there before you physically enter the store. So maybe there's a hybrid that emerges here. But I, but I agree with your point, Ross, that it's hard to imagine other companies entered the space if Facebook can't be successful here and they are very focused on it. It's not like this is a blind spot for them. Now they may get it wrong still and somebody else may, may enter successfully, but they're very focused on it. And they've also shown that they can quickly pivot into whatever is, is driving market uptake. And they certainly will with VR. The consensus among all the major players at this point is that VR and augmented reality are on some kind of continuum and that products in the future are going to be able to switch between various degrees of VR and AR. The ambition behind this reminds me a bit of Magic Leap in that they have tried to create both the hardware and the uh, and, and, and some of the content uh, around it. And, uh, you know, Magic Leap also around that $600 price point, huge backing from major players like Google, AT&T. Uh, and, um, you know, they recently announced, uh, even though they got an infusion of capital, that they're going to have to shift direction uh, to become more of a focused enterprise play. Uh, so, you know, for all the talk about consumer, that's really where a lot of the value uh, is today, and only for certain scenarios. I mean, once you start looking at real engineering and industrial design in VR, uh, you quickly go up to these headsets that cost thousands of dollars from these boutique companies that can deliver that kind of resolution. But, uh Yeah. But I think that's where a lot of the opportunity is. You know, right. you, you you don't want to ignore the consumer market because it's so big, it's so large. And all of these companies, whether it's Facebook or whether it's Facebook's Instagram or whether it's somebody else, you, you see the value, Twitter, you see the value in these social networks that can be captured when there's massive engagement uh, on, on these platforms. And yet... I still kind of turn back to it feels like the killer app for these really is the things that are happening in commercial applications and mm-hmm. enterprise, you know, it's, it may be healthcare, but I think there's some other applications that, uh, that are less consumer centric. Well, certainly an evolving story. I mean, Google invested in this space for several years, uh, ultimately decided to get out, seems to be pivoting, 
uh, a lot of its resources toward augmented reality. Uh, a lot of the Qualcomm investments, <clears throat> even though they're, uh, you know, so this year and, and next year, you're going to see new generations of headsets uh, that, that have that integrated 5G because it's supported in their VR headset. That's widely used. You've got companies like Enreal developing lower cost uh, headsets. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting uh, moves happening in the space. You had HP coming out with its own reverb <clears throat> VR headset uh, that's uh, moving more toward consumer. But um, but it seems to me that the major ecosystem guys are pushing more toward uh, augmented reality as a mass market play. And frankly, that's harder. You know that that is harder than than VR. I think in many ways. So. We'll see if uh, if this new startup uh, moves in that direction as well. Yeah, you need the uptake to uh, to be quicker than the uh, cash burn, and that's the yes. problem that a lot of these companies have had is that uh, they may have a great product, but they don't have enough uptake to overcome mm -hmm. the, the cash burn. Right. Uh, and finally, this week we saw the uh, the launch of HBO Max. Though it wasn't a ubiquitous uh, availability, it's not available, for example, on Amazon Prime. And so there's some kind of nuances are around the availability Money. of that. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, but that obviously a, a big story this week as uh, yet another content service becomes uh, available. I think the, the word that I've seen used most in conjunction with the launch of HBO Max has been mess. You know, everyone is describing it as a mess. Uh, the content doesn't seem to be super well organized. There's lack of support for 4K. Uh, there are no downloads uh, like there is on uh, Netflix. Uh, but, you know, on some level, uh, a lot of the concern seems overblown. Oh, and, and you know, it, it does sort of like jam together four or five minimally related uh, content brands. Uh, but, um, and, and I can understand the concern if you're thinking about HBO Max as a competitor in the open market versus Netflix, Disney Plus. You know, if I'm a consumer and I'm deciding where I want to invest uh, in, in terms of a new service, then uh, I think HBO Max has, uh, has some challenges, certainly pricing-wise, <clears throat> against the value that a, a Disney Plus can provide or, or its bundle that Disney has put together with Hulu and, uh, and ESPN. But um, for anyone who is currently subscribing to HBO Go or HBO uh, Now, uh, the two services uh, that uh, preceded HBO Max, uh, HBO Max basically replaces them. As you know, there have been some rollout challenges. There's some availability uh, issues, but uh, from everything I can see, uh, for the over, you know, virtually all HBO Go subscribers also have access to HBO Max. And all, HBO Now is going away uh, and is going to be replaced by HBO Max uh, at the same price. Uh, so you know, what are people really losing? They're getting more content for essentially the same price. So I, I don't see how you can, you know, be uh, complaining about this too much. If, if you're a current subscriber, if, if you think about it in terms of the industry appeal versus competitive services, yeah, there, there are some value issues to address, I think. 
And it'd be interesting to see if any of these companies kind of switch their, how they, how the finances settle out when they don't garner widespread adoption. If they mm-hmm. do start to move to a, to a more pay as you consume, which would be essentially an advertising like model, you know, pay as you, as you consume model in order to remain viable when the kind of fixed monthly cost just doesn't satisfy their the economics of the platform. Well, but, but Warner Media is in kind of a tough spot because uh, HBO has always been the, you know, gold mm-hmm. standard of subscription television. It was a, a big pioneer in the space of subscription uh, premium content. Uh, and so it's, it's difficult, I think. I, I don't think they have as much maneuverability uh, in, in terms of the finances, in terms of the <clears throat> elasticity of the brand, as say NBC Universal does with Peacock, you know, which is uh, going to be launching more broadly next month. Uh, no, not quite. Uh, in July, uh, uh, with, with an ad-supported tier. Uh, of course, Hulu also originally supported within uh, a free ad-supported tier, uh, and and they got rid of that. Uh, so, um, so that again, the challenge is: Does HBO still command, you know, what would be the highest price, uh, uh, you know, broadband subscription service uh, on the market? Um, and I guess it helps if you throw in things like DC Comics and some subset of Crunchyroll and and uh, uh, the, um, the Warner Brothers uh, movies and Big Bang Theory and Friends and other things that we probably associate more with other networks on which they aired, but for which uh, Warner actually produced the, uh, the content. Um, so, um, so again, I think for existing subscribers, they'll probably stick with it, at least for a while. Uh, but um, uh, for cord cutters, it's, it's probably a tougher sell. Yeah, and I, I think to your point, it, it really speaks to the value of the catalog, mm-hmm. what, what you're bringing. Have a great so, catalog. Yeah, yeah. Have a great catalog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think that that is a major differentiator. I mean, obviously, it benefits like a Disney Plus, benefits tremendously from the catalog. Uh, having friends is definitely a benefit to, to HBO Max. And so mm-hmm. the, these legacy catalogs definitely benefit it. But is it enough moving forward? You know, at, at some point, it probably isn't enough uh, for for the platforms to be viable. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Well, as as we've said many times on the podcast, you know, something's got to give. Uh, consumers aren't going to subscribe to a dozen of these services. Uh, so you know, the the most expensive one starts to look suspect pretty early. Yeah, and, and maybe it looks like the cell services where, where there's just a lot of churn mm-hmm. as people move across the platforms to right. take advantage of whatever the trending release is. You know, they, they move back to Netflix when it, and, and there's probably some that you don't cancel. Maybe Netflix and Amazon Prime are ones that, that people kind of hold month in, month out. <laughs> but you could imagine that maybe people go to an HBO Max when there's a, a show that's popular and then they go back to a Netflix when Stranger Things comes out with a new series or, you know, whatever the, the popular release is. And, and that's a good point around timing, Sean, because I, you know, it used to be Game of Thrones was the, the right. 
ten, you know, uh, eight hundred pound, eight hundred ton dragon uh, that would uh, yeah. bring people in. Uh, and I don't think they have anything with that kind of draw uh, at the moment. But yeah. of course, that could change. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, so we'll see. And obviously, the pandemic has put a lot of pressure on original content production as it has mm-hmm. slowed production schedules and, and production cycles. So that really uh, exacerbates the challenge that these platforms are having, the Quibis mm-hmm. of the world mm-hmm. and, and the HBOs, which traditionally had a lot of great original content in, this, mm-hmm. in addition to catalogs that they, that they uh, took advantage of. Uh, that makes this time even more challenging for them because they're not able to, to roll out these, uh, you know, Game of Thrones is a great example, filmed on location insane production yeah amazing production so it's hard to to do that right now Mm -hmm. and so all of that will be delayed which means that they really will probably be relying on their catalog for for longer than they might have wanted to right well that's probably a good place to wrap it up Uh, again i'm sean dubervac with avrio institute you can find me on twitter at sean dubervac and I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week with another episode of Techspansive.